So as a reminder, in 536 B.C., Ezra, Nehemiah, and Mordecai made the first trip to Jerusalem. They restored worship in Jerusalem in the seventh month of that year. And what we find is that the work on the foundation of the temple begins in 535 in the second month and work on the walls begin. Now I want to emphasize though the walls part for just a second. Um, dispensationalists really like to emphasize the separation of the start of the walls and the start of the temple. They argue that there's two different prophetic timelines and some of their argument schemas depend upon the walls starting separately. Um, it's clear uh, in, in Ezra that the walls have already begun to be built um, and that there's a concern. We're going we're gonna to see that. The text we just read in Ezra 4 uh, deals with that some. Um, in addition to that, um, there's, there's a secular chronology, again, using the Ptolemaic timeline where people try to separate out Nehemiah and Ezra and, and attach them to uh, different, uh, different emperors and they separate out the wall building and the temple building there. So there's sort of two groups. So when most of the commentaries and stuff you run into are going to separate those, um, but that doesn't, that's not what we're going to see today in uh, the Ezra text. So I want to re-emphasize chapter 3 to you. We looked at chapter 2 and chapter 3 last time. We thought about the people. We thought about the work. And so this work of restoring the worship, I want to emphasize again. Um, and I want to emphasize how important it is. And I want to show you uh, some of the details walking through, but also, um, well, just we'll, we'll, we'll start going through. So, chapter 3, verse 1, When the seventh month had come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So remember, Joshua is the high priest. Zerubbabel is the chief magistrate. So when we're dealing with that, we, do, we see this. The high priest is leading this worship, and the magistrate is seeking to help to support that um, and is endowing for the establishment of the church because of the fact that there's a time of disorder. So he's coming in and helping to see an endowing and a supporting. They rose to build the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it. And remember, burnt offerings are a symbol of atonement because it's the killing of an animal. But they're also a symbol of holiness. Okay? Holiness. You burn the animal and it reminds you of holiness, devotion to God. When it's burnt up, right? No, no, nobody's eating the burnt part. So, then it says, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So, as it is written, and we're going to see that get emphasized. Look down at verse 4, for example. It says, they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written. It is an emphasis on returning to what was written. And this application of the law of God as it's written. So, this returning there. The concern is not with the traditions of the elders. The concern is not... With a verbal tradition, the concern is the scriptures. Now, verse 3. 
Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases or on the foundations. Okay, so we're commanded to fear not. We're commanded to be courageous. And even when you are sinfully fearing man, it is better to fear man and then obey than to fear man and then not obey. So they're afraid of the people around them. But they still did what they knew was right. I mean, they had gone on this journey for this reason. These people had gone on an 800-mile journey for this reason. To see the worship of God reestablished. And they offered burnt offerings on this altar, on it to the Lord. Both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. So we're reminded of the regularity, the morning and the evening burnt offerings. Okay, so here's regular worship. Verse 4, they also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written. Okay, so this would be the 15th day of the 7th month. So they are, on the 7th month There is when they restart this. It says down at verse 6, right? From the first day of the 7th month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Okay, so, so they get to the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Tabernacles is just two weeks after that, that first establishing of the worship again. So they're getting there, and they're getting there right at the end of harvest. The Feast of Tabernacles would be in the late harvest period. It's the end of the harvest. And, and so what you're, they're getting there, and this would be a time where they are seeking to get things in place, and there's all sorts of other work to do because they need to get fields ready to be able to grow food by the next growing season. And so they are, there's all sorts of problems. There's, there's no wall. The houses are in disrepair. The lands are not ready for proper growing of food. And they are in concerned to initiate this worship and to get things rolling so they can have God worshiping, God being worshipped because their expectation is that there's blessing from God. Like, this is what matters. That this is, this is the goal, is to glorify God. And so they need to see His worship put into place. So they kept the Feast of Tabernacles as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by ordinance for each day. Those daily offerings are not the same thing as the, the morning and evening offerings that were just mentioned. These are the daily offerings associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. So, so not only are they putting the regular sacrifices into place, but they're also being careful to apply in detail what was written for the liturgical calendar established in the Old Covenant. Afterward, verse 5, they offered the regular burnt offering. Okay, again, that's the repetition. So we have the regular burnt offerings, the morning and evening. There's the, the special one of the Feast of Tabernacles. And then they also keep the new moons. We talked about that. There's there's a special uh, sacrifice there. There's also special sacrifices for the Sabbath. The new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated. Okay, so they're doing all the sacrifices for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and made holy to God. And those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. So there's, there's the commanded sacrifices and then there's also free will offerings, additional sacrifices that are offered as people vow, as people choose to do. Verse 6, 
From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So we, we over and over again are seeing when they don't have everything built out the way that they need to, they're doing the closest thing they can to the established order in their unsettled state that they can. Verse 7. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa. Okay, so there's, there's this doing of all of the holy work and then there's also using money to make payment to get the resources and work done that needs to be done in an expedited way. So they are using their limited resources in a time when they don't have farms set up, when they don't have walls set up, when their houses are not built. They are using resources to seek to expedite the setting up of the temple properly. According to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now verse 8. Now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Joshua the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem, began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Now, historically, you would have had the priests... And you'd have had them supervising Levites, and you'd have had Levites that were 25 and older with assistants that were 20 to 25 doing the work. Okay? They are so short on labor that they have Levites of 20, not just doing the work, supervising the work. Not just doing the work, supervising the work. Okay, so this is another proof text of this effort to deal with things in an unsettled state with the devolution of authority to people in the places where they are based upon the limitations of the workers and the need to get things established. Verse 9. Then Joshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons, and the sons of Judah arose as one to, ser- to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren the Levites. So now also you have the high priest who is supposed to be free from this kind of Levitical work. And he's supposed to be able to focus on teaching and on the sacramental administration and prayer. And he is not only in a higher station that would ordinarily do this work, but he's doing that work. So now you have the evolution of authority in the sense of things that would be done by lower positions are being done by higher positions in these emergency situations. So you have the magistrate coming in to endow the church. You have the high priest doing works of Levites. And you have these 20-year-old Levites doing the work of what would ordinarily be 25-year-old Levites and above. Okay, so you have all these people performing special work, putting their hand to the labor, seeking to see the worship of God put into its proper place as quickly as they can. Verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, okay, the apparel. So we, we've seen here, look at all these ceremonial law elements that are being emphasized. There's, there's the liturgical calendar. There's 
the ceremonial law with the sacrifices. We have seen also now the apparel of the priests, the vestments, the priestly garb, the priestly uniform. Okay? That's ceremonial. A guy gets up in this pulpit someday with a collar on. You go, I'm sorry, are you a Levitical priest? Okay? When, you have, when you have priestly garb for a person who is an officer of the church, there's a reassertion of the distinction of the priesthood of all believers versus the priesthood of only an officer set. Okay, so priestly garb is not a, a matter of just, you know, is it okay? Is it all right for people to wear, you know, some sort of a a a, a special vicar's you know uniform? Okay, the the imposition of a of a uniform for clergy. Okay, that word clergy also. The imposition of a uniform for clergy is a Judaizing. To go back to a priestly apparel. Okay? Liturgical calendar, Judaizing. Priestly apparel, Judaizing. Clergy, the word clergy comes from the Greek word kleros as opposed to laos. Laos, laity. You ever heard of lady? Lady, the laos are the people. And the kleros are the priests. Okay, now, in the New Testament, the laos are the kleros. The people are the priests. So, all of these things have to be resisted in the New Covenant era as impositions of Judaizing, of, of bringing in Old Testament ceremonial law. And when we invent any of them, right, like, like the Jewish priestly garb did not include some weird little white collar. That weird little white collar is not even Judaizing. It's Judaizing in the sense of wanting a priestly uniform. But it is a human invention. I want like 12 stones and like a turban, right? If I'm going to Judaize, I'm going to do it for real. It's going to be awesome. No, don't do it. It would not be tolerable. So this invention of our... um, clerical garb that we want to bring in is another type of Judaizing. These are the kinds of things that were resisted by the covenanters, they fought the bishops war over, and that Puritans were ejected from their churches over. Okay, so, but at this time, this was obedience. God commanded a priestly apparel. To not have the priests wear their uniforms would have been disobedience. The way we map onto their obedience is by refusing human inventions and only doing what's written. So their care for the detail of all this stuff translates to us in a care for the simplicity of the new covenant worship. People will preach on this. They'll preach on all sorts of Old Testament stuff and always go, God cares about his worship. He cares about the detail. They'll, they'll go look at the end of Exodus and say, see all this detail? God cares about his worship. And that's the application. And then nobody says, okay, what's the detail application here? Puritanism defends the simplicity of the new covenant worship against Judaizing and human invention. And that is the same sort of zeal that you see in the Old Testament for the imposition of the ceremonial laws that were then to be kept. The foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid. And the priests stood in their priestly garb with 
Trumpets. That was a part of the Old Testament administration. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. Okay, that right there. That ordinance of the king of, da- of David. That was the ceremonial law from the temple. This text is reminding us that the use of musical instruments in worship was put into place by David. That is where it came from. And they sang, and then we talked last time about this, it says they sang responsively. Responsively is, is a terrible translation. It's just yanu, which means to sing. It can also mean to submit. And so it could be to sing submissively or in obedience. Okay, that's how you could do it. So responsively, everybody thinks antiphonal singing. One person singing to another and back and forth. And that's not what it said. The number of commentaries and sermons that I've heard where people just say that's what this is talking about, antiphonal singing, is exasperating. And that's not what's being said. If you want to say responsively, if you're going to try to make that a translation, it's got to be like, and they sang responsively to the command of God. That's the, that's the idea. They, they sang submissively to the command of God. The, the word is translated to sing, it's translated to bow, it's translated to submit, it's translated sometimes to refer to the idea of a wife yielding to the husband. Okay, that. Those are the types of things that it means. Responsive antiphonal singing is not the point of the word. And this is very commonly appealed to as a reason to let people sing all sorts of different stuff in complex ways and having choirs singing parts and people being silent and even to encourage people to sing solos in church. Okay, this is a, this is a common verse to go to to try to justify these kinds of things. So I want you to be aware that word is not a word that means to give antiphonal singing. So they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And then it gives us a good quote of a psalm, and it is either 107, 106, or 136. 136 is literally, it starts with, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That's the mercy endures forever is repeated over and over and over again. The toward Israel is the point that is made over and over again because you have all these other lines that keep showing examples of his mercy toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Okay, Foundation is a literal foundation here for the temple, the literal temple. We know that the New Testament picks up on the idea of the foundation of the church, the foundation of the temple, and uses it analogically for the foundation of the church. And it does that repeatedly. And it's always, it's always Christ is the chief cornerstone, and the apostles and prophets are the foundation. The point there is the word of God, what is written, is the foundation for the church. It is the doctrine. It is the, the truth that has been revealed. And the temple that is built on top of that foundation is the church itself. It's the people. And we are living stones. And we're going to see that analogy, right? We're going to see that analogy when we go through Zechariah, who preaches to these people. Okay, So he's trying to get them to see the typologies when he's talking to them. So then all the people shouted with a great shout 
when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Okay, so the foundation being complete. So a great celebratory event was the completion of the canon. That was a, a type. This is a type. That was something that was a reality. Completion of the canon was a great thing worthy to be celebrated. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. All right, so they're sad because the Solomonic temple was so glorious, and this thing is so much Less glorious, just being a slab of concrete, basically. Right? Like concrete stones. But so we've got this stones on the ground with an altar on it. And that's a far cry from the Solomonic Temple. Now remember, Ezekiel 40 to 48 lays out for us the uh, dimensions of the temple that would ultimately be reached, the Herodian Temple. And I did a little bit of some initial calculating, and we're talking about something that looks like somewhere a little bit less than like 15 football fields of area. It's like American football fields. And you look at those, you have like 15 of them in like a kind of squarish shape. And you'd have about the size of the Ezekiel temple than the Herodian temple, which is the manifestation of that. Now, chapter 4. So it's going to get to there. It's going to get to that kind of external glory eventually. So chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Okay, so first of all, notice that this says the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. Okay, so these are adversaries. They're enemies. They're not real friends. They are frenemies. They are, we want to come and work with you. Smile. So the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel. And they come to their chief magistrate, and his ruling council. And they say, let us build with you. Let us build with you. One of the frequent temptations of the church of God is to get approval from the world and to get approval from false churches and corrupt churches and compromising churches. And everybody says, let's build together. First of all, if we're being realistic, most people do not want to work very hard to build anything. They don't want to waste your time together. That's what they want to do. Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So what's this about? Well, this goes back, first of all, remember the northern tribes compromise, and they establish their own temples, they establish golden calves, 
they established a new priesthood with new feast days. And so they syncretize. They add man-made elements to the religion. And that was something that separated the North and the South. But furthermore, after the captivity, Assyria brought people into the land. Right? They, they took the northern tribes captive, enslaved them, pulled them out, and distribute them and scatter them. Why? Why did you do that? What's, why was that the Assyrian principle for occupation? The Assyrians had this model. They said, when we conquer a place, we enslave everybody, and we make it so it's harder for them to revolt by scattering them throughout the land. Hey, think about this. If you had a bunch of slaves and you were a horrible human being and you were trying to make these people serve you and not rebel, and let's say you have four different places where you've got slaves, are you going to take everybody that speaks the same language and knows each other and put them all in the same place? Or are you going to scatter those people across the four different places where you keep slaves and mix the groups together so it's harder for them to get large groups to coordinate? That's the Assyrian model. The Assyrian model was a very imperious command control enslave model. Take people, move them around, make them do enslaved work, scattered throughout the empire. And that redistribute work. The Persian model that we see with Cyrus, he takes the people that have been scattered and he replants them. He replants them in their lands in consolidated ways. Why? Because he has watched the Assyrians' highly centralized government get overwhelmed by the Babylonians, and he has seen the Babylonians get overwhelmed by him. And what he thinks is the Babylonians and the Assyrians enslave people and consolidate them, and as a result, these people are not loyal to the central administration. And in fact, they are happy to change over and serve any new overlord. So whoever looks powerful, they will side with because they have no real interest in preserving one government over another. So Cyrus's policy is to establish satellite states that are semi-autonomous, that are somewhat dependent, that would have their own units to defend their space and to make it so it's in their interest to fight to preserve themselves and to preserve their support from the central empire. Okay, that's sort of the American NATO model. And so what you do, and that's also similar to what the Romans did to help to consolidate the Italian boot. Okay, they, they, they would take people in and they would make it so that they were confederated and then they would have a mutual defensive element. So what Cyrus is doing is he's somewhat reducing the centralization that has occurred. And this is common in businesses and administrations of government and all that stuff. You know, I need to centralize to make it more efficient. I need to decentralize to make it more efficient. This is the swing of all sorts of things throughout history. It's this centralized, decentralized type of thing. And it's easy to gather a constituency of support when you do that because there's always people who are unhappy with the current way things are done. And so you go, I've got a plan. And this is it. If you want, you want to go in, if you ever are offered a job to run a company and the company is highly centralized, you just walk in and you go, you know what we're going to do? We're going to decentralize. Give people authority. We're going to make decisions. They're going to move things down. It's going to be great. People are going to be more efficient, whatever. You go into a company and it's decentralized. You walk in there and you go, you know, the problem is this thing's too decentralized. What we need to do is we need to centralize authority, make it so we have, you know, we're all more cohesive. We're going in the same direction. We're rowing in the same 
direction towards the same goal. We're doing the right. So you can you can always sound like you've got a plan. You know what you're doing. This is it. These are your two playbooks. We're going to centralize. We're going to decentralize. Okay. And you're going to see this throughout history too. This is what kings and empires and everybody does. There's this there's this go back and forth. And you can feel very confident. Just find where are we now. We'll go the other direction, and it'll look like I have a plan. So Cyrus decentralizes. Now. Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. What happened there? Well, we had the northern tribes that had their, their syncretistic religion, the mixing of human traditions with what was established. And then we have the people taken out by the Assyrians, and then we have the Assyrians planting people into Israel that are not from Israel, to try to manage that land. Okay, these are the enslaved peoples being put in from another place. And then lions just start eating them. Right? They're, they're saying, you know, I, I can't get the job done because lions are in the street. And everybody goes, you're being lazy. And they go, no, there's literal lions in the street. Like, walk outside with me this time. And they go, oh, that's a lion. And they saw the lion and just goes eat somebody else. And they go, wow. Okay, there's lots of lions going around eating lots of people. This is apparently a real problem. This was their actual problem. So their solution is maybe we need to figure out how to worship the God of that particular land and he'll stop sending lions to eat everybody. Okay? So they find the northern tribe people and they go, how did you guys worship the God of that land again? And what was his name? And so then they reinstitute the type of worship that was kind of there from the northern tribes. And then they, there's this kind of ending to the lions going around and eating everybody. Now, the southern tribes hated this because they didn't reinstitute the original worship of Yahweh as it is in Moses. Right? What they institute is a sort of weak-kneed version of the weak-kneed version that was the northern tribe worship. So this would be like how offensive it would be to us if somebody said, okay, how do the Roman Catholics worship? Okay, great. And then they kind of mix that with like Islam. And you get like halfway between Roman Catholicism and Islam. And you're like, see? This is the careful worship of the triune God. No more lions. And this is, this is the, what happened. So these are the guys that are coming and they're saying, let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So this is a mixture of Israelites, people that were moved in from, from the king of Assyria and other people that have gone there. And so this is this weird mixed ball of syncretism. But Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So what they're doing is this. They're saying, one, we're only going to build in the way we've been commanded by God. So they're careful to apply the regulated principle. And two, what they are doing is they are also saying that they are unwilling to work with people who are not covenanted to do the same thing. And the point here is not to say, no, you can never join us. You can never work with us. The point is, if you want to work with us, you need to repent of this false religion 
and covenant with us to maintain the true religion. You must repent of this false religion and covenant with us to uphold the true religion. It is, it is sin to prevent people from repenting and taking the sacraments with a profession that is credible. It is also sin to have people work and join into this without covenanting. Verse 4. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. Okay, you won't do it with us? Then you're losers, and what you're doing isn't worthwhile, and you can't get it done anyways, and there's so few of you, there's so little money, and nobody agrees with you. And, you know, are you guys alone right? The people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Cyrus to Darius, they're constantly trying to harass. Hiring counselors is hiring lawyers, lobbyists and lawyers. There's a new zoning ordinance. Your temple's in residential zone. We're suing you to stop construction because of disturbance of the peace. This troubling in building would be you know, trying to discourage the masons and carpenters that they've hired, the idea of frustrating their purpose and going after the relationships they have with the men in Sidon and Tyre and that are shipping product to them in Joppa, trying to perhaps buy up some of those goods and bid up the price or hire away some of those workers to make it so that they're unavailable. Seeking to cause confusion, stir strife and discord, the taking away of confidence that the mission can be done, the taking away of confidence that what God has commanded is something that should be done, that you guys are being too strict or all that, right? Those things. You really care about the priests wearing the apparel? I mean, it seems like a little literal or legalistic or I don't know. Trumpets. Are you really that concerned about the trumpets? I think they have to be silver. Why do they have to be silver? Just because it said so in Moses. Verse 6. In the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, so here's what's happened. In 528, Cyrus the Great dies. And he's replaced by Cambyses II. So what we have is Cyrus, who wrote the decree to build this thing, replaced by Cambyses. Okay, so in the reign of Ahasuerus, and again, that's the name for emperor, broadly. So Cambyses has the title of emperor. In the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So apparently nothing came of it. Cambyses ultimately ignores this. This is a suit, and he apparently throws it out, perhaps with prejudice. Nothing happens. He simply maintains Cyrus's decree. So that's about a decade later. Then, in the days of Artaxerxes, 
Hey, and Artaxerxes here. That's that's someone known as Magus or Pseudo Smyrtus. Remember Pseudo Smyrtus? Smyrtus was a brother of Cambyses II. And there's this guy who's referred to as Magus, who is said to have pretended to be Smyrtus and taken the throne. He lasted for less than a year. Now, this group, uh, this, this, this pretender to the throne, or perhaps the, the real Smyrtus, whatever it is, whatever the case is, is removed relatively quickly by a group of seven. And that seven includes Darius. And then that seven takes over rule, and then relatively quickly, Darius ends up taking over rule. But he has to fight a war to reunite the empire. Okay, but so this is just so you understand. So the change of administration is always an opportunity to seek to get your policy enacted. The old administration had the build the temple policy. Let's try with the Cambyses, the second administration. Ah, he doesn't do anything. Okay, let's now file with the Pseudo-Smyrtus administration. All right, Pseudo-Smyrtus is on board with the stop the temple plan. So that's, that's how this works. You just, you're con- they're constantly looking for an opportunity to disrupt the work. So in the, day, in the days of Artaxerxes, now remember, Ahasuerus is a title, it means emperor. Artaxerxes is a claim to emperorship beyond just what is historically sort of the Medo-Persian Empire. It is this claim in particular to have a sort of universal emperorship and especially to have rule over the Greeks. So it involves a claim of hegemony over the Greeks. So Pseudo-Smyrtus was claiming this hegemony over the Greeks as well as the rest of the empire. So in the days of Artaxerxes, also Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabel, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. So again, the Aramaic language, the Aramaic script, is, um, is Hebrew, but it was a sort of lingua franca for the Medo-Persian Empire. And so it's like a dialect. It's like a type of Hebrew. Verse 8. Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. Okay, so these guys are uh, people who are in the administration for the provincial rule inside of this, uh, this empire. Now, Pseudo-Smyrtus is having trouble with stabilizing the empire, and his failure to be able to stabilize the empire is obvious from the fact that he's enthroned for less than a year, and the fact that there's a civil war and a breakup of the empire immediately following that Darius has to reconsolidate the empire. Okay, so he's very concerned about this. So these guys very intelligently play upon his real fears and get this guy to react. From Rehum, verse 9, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Danites and the Pharsethites and the Tarpalites, the people of Persia and Erech and Babylon and Shushan, the Dehavites, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great noble Osnapper took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the remainder beyond the river, that would be the Euphrates, 
and so forth. Apparently it was a long introductory portion. This is a copy of the letter that they sent him. To King Artaxerxes, again this is Pseudosmyrtus, from your servants, <coughs> the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth. That was the merciful summation of what we had a longer version of from above, which was also apparently a merciful summation of the original. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Okay, so... The region beyond the river, this is a very large administrative district. You remember Daniel, in the book of Daniel, he ends up organizing the provinces under three major administrative districts. And Daniel goes from administration to administration. So this large administrative district is probably part of the design that Daniel had. Now, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city. That's a great way to start. Just plant that thought there right in the beginning. The rebellious and evil too. Rebellious and evil city. And are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Okay, so the walls part is the scary part. The walls part is the scary part. The walls part is an assertion that they are building walls which allow them to defend, and who are they trying to defend against? And if you're an emperor and you're worried about rebellions, you're worried they're trying to defend against you. And so the walls, rather than becoming a useful thing to see the empire defended against external threats, become a threat of your central administration. And so this idea of the building the walls, finishing the walls, and repairing the foundations, that becomes a threat for their capacity to defend. So let it now be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Okay, so it's a rebellious city, it's an evil city, they're building walls and trying to complete the foundations for the walls for the rest of the city and all that. And if they get that in place, they're not going to pay you taxes anymore. That's a dangerous precedent for other people to follow. And when you are trying to fight to maintain your empire, the loss of revenues makes it more difficult to make that happen. You have to spend a lot of money to fight a lot of wars. Now, because we receive support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. Okay, so there's a claim of ethos here. Why should you believe us? We received support from you. We want to see your power maintained. So we have reason to see that you continue to get your revenues and to not have to deal with this. And hidden in there is, of course, the fact that a, a administrative authority that oversees that area would inevitably have to be the one who's charged with the task of taking it. So he's saying, please don't make me have to go fight these people. And that will result in us having to pay money which, by the way, you're helping us to get, so that's going to increase your expenses if we have to fight them. Now, because we received support from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king. 
that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. Okay? So now they're saying, look, there's an evidentiary base for these claims. And you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city. There's a history of the city rebelling. Harmful to kings and provinces. By the way, it has always been the charge against the people of Yahweh that they are harmful to kings. Presbyterians are dangerous to kings. King George called the War of Independence the Presbyterian Revolt. The idea that Puritans are hateful of kings. The idea of the Scots being hateful to kings. Of the Dutch being hateful to kings. Of the Swiss. You will find over and over again in Germany, the Reformed resisting the centralized Holy Roman Empire, enemies to kings. This idea of rebelling against that. And what you find is, of course, that historically the scripture plainly teaches that kingship is not the best form of government. It's a curse. And furthermore, that there are limits on kings' powers. And so there's a resistance against tyranny. And so what you find is, of course there is actually a history of resisting tyranny, which sometimes gets interpreted as a history of resisting lawful government. And in addition to that, you also find some people who claim to be Calvinist, Presbyterian, Jewish, whatever, from the history of whatever the church was at the time, and they commit some sort of sin or foolish rebellion, and that gets attributed to the religion. So in this case, what are they going to find? They're going to find that Nebuchadnezzar was rebelled against multiple times by Jerusalem, which resulted in Jerusalem's destruction. So you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. Verse 16, We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. It's a powerful concluding sentence. If you allow the walls to be rebuilt, you will have no dominion beyond the river. That's a strong claim. No dominion beyond the river. It's not just that Jerusalem would leave, but in fact, that Jerusalem would be a center of power. Verse 17. That part is, is good because they did a really strong argument and they hint at another piece of the argument. The rhetoric in this is fantastic. And you, you know, it's interesting. You hit on Ezra and Nehemiah and there's a lot of lessons of politics in Ezra and Nehemiah. But how to deal with opposition and how to deal with those who would seek to use coercive power to stop the church and those who would seek to use corrupting power to stop the church. So the corruption is the, the temptation of uniting sinfully with other people and the power threat of the use of government and lawsuits and all of that. So the king sent an answer. To Rehum the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the remainder beyond the river. Peace and so forth. Another merciful shortening for us. Verse 18. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and search was, has been made, and it was found that this city in former times has revolted against, king, against kings, and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem. That's the part that was hinted at. 
That's the part that was hinted at. So not only is it the case that there's a history of sedition and rebellion, but there's also a history of Jerusalem being the seat of mighty power. There's also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the region beyond the river. Remember Solomon taking tribute from the Euphrates to the Nile? And tax and tribute and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Now this is, according to the constitution of the Medes and Persians, illegal. A decree of Cyrus was a decree of an emperor. The decrees of the emperor could not be withdrawn. They could not be repealed. The command to rebuild is something that is an unconstitutional order. Verse 22. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the herd of the kings? Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai the scribe and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews. They were so happy to show off that decree. And by force of arms made them cease. So these guys already had overwhelming force. But they were afraid of displeasing the emperor. And now that they have the emperor's go-ahead, they take their overwhelming force to this city whose fortifications are not yet done after a decade of building. The temple not being done after a decade of building. And they stop the building. by force of arms, made them cease. Verse 24, Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased, and it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now Darius, king of Persia, will regain the titles not only of king of Persia, which is the lesser, but he will eventually gain the title of Ahasuerus, and eventually he will regain the title of Artaxerxes. But it's the second year after he regains kingship over Persia at the center of the empire. In the midst of that reconsolidating civil war, that's when they restart the building. The next time, we'll look at what happens with Haggai and Zechariah, and we'll take an interlude to begin to look at what those prophets said to these people in these circumstances at this time. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.